And I would argue if you're going to stick in you, collective you, if you're going to stick around in the freelance and contracting and consulting world, you better like selling because it's, it's, it's a like certainly weekly, if not daily part of what you do. And even once you're in the client, you know, you're pitching them because you have to sell them on your idea. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm excited to welcome Amanda Rabideau to our show today. Amanda, I always throw it to the guests. I'm not a big, like, read your bio kind of guy. So please introduce yourself to the audience who doesn't yet know you and what you do. Hi, everyone. Amanda Rabideau, founder and CEO of Arch Collective. Arch Collective offers fractional CMO services to post-series A B2B tech startup companies. And in addition to the fractional CMO, which right now I'm the sole fractional CMO, we also offer access to the collective or our network of freelance marketers and creatives who help bring the marketing strategy and marketing plan to life for my clients. It, and I love this you know, collective model. I've seen it in different verticals and functions. It's like, uh, and it used to be a little weirder to pull together you know, freelancers from all over the place to do the special things. But uh, now, you know, I think the whole world is is moving that way. So it's just, it's an exciting time in work and fractional work and, you know, expertise. I just feel like, what's the experience, you know, been like for you over the last couple of years in that, that sea change in attitude? It's so interesting because I started Arch Collective 
in 2019. And so this is before the pandemic. This is before the great resignation. And this is when people were expected to be in the office a lot more than they are today. And so all of those things has, has certainly changed the workplace, the marketplace, the, the mindset of a lot of companies, including startups, you know, the clients that I work with. And so I think that freelancers are now not just an option, but almost mandatory for a lot of businesses because hiring full-time talent is, is really challenging. It's competitive. What people want has increased. You know, there's a lot of burnout out there from the way companies treated full-time employees throughout the pandemic. So to say that it's an interesting time in the world of freelancing and contracting is, is a very gross understatement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so... Interesting. You mentioned, you know, the being a parent and kids at home and all the like everything has has shifted. But I like you have been, you know, in the remote sort of freelancer world for a number of years. And I just find it, you know, fascinating to watch everybody else kind of catch up and learn how to do the thing that that uh, now we all feel like we're experts in, you know, that <laughs> we did it before we had to do it. And it, it's it's been awesome. So. Well, it's it's funny you to use the term experts, you know, I'll reuse that what you just said, because now more and more I'm having people ask me, where did you find such great people? Or how do you keep them? Or what do you do to, to bring in freelancers and get them up to speed so quickly? And, you know, funny enough, I was actually just putting together a, an Instagram reel on this because as I had said, I, I, you know, more and more companies are bringing on contractors, utilizing them for a lot more work. And there, you know, there are expectations. There are ways that you can handle bringing on freelancers, onboarding them to make it a more successful relationship. And just like you said, you've been doing this for years. You've been working in that world. So you probably have many pearls of wisdom that you could share. And, and I certainly have, have learned a thing or two in, in working with contractors in my, my few years, um, really focused in that space myself. Well, I, I certainly would advise, I bet you would too, that because of the nature of procurement and dealing with relationships, the, the collective or, you know, sort of whatever model, you know, someone can roll up a bunch of freelancers in and bill, you know, and send one invoice, uh, that's going to be a hell of a lot easier for the consuming party. So uh, I would certainly 100%. recommend that. Like that makes a lot of sense as a, and, and sometimes people used to use the collective idea of, well, we only have one brand, but we all send our own invoice. And I always thought that was in fact, not a really good way to do it. It would be better to have, you know, one billing entity that can just have one nice statement and, you know, pay the bill that way. So Totally. And then, I mean, in the, the invoice in some ways would be the easiest part of it, right? What about managing that team, aligning all those team members, you know, making sure that they understand the, the culture of how things work, that they know how to log on to things. I mean, there's these, the, the I guess if we're going to go into like common pitfalls, you know, the thing that I, I see and observe is that um, a lot of people forget that freelancers, yes, they are you know, sometimes guns for hire, if you will, but they are also humans. They also have other clients or very likely have other clients. And I think that something like a basic, you know, humanity about how you treat freelancers is something that if you can just 
provide that, you're probably like a hundred yards ahead of everyone else in the competition. Cause you know, it's like, I think that sometimes freelancers get the perception like, oh, they're taking the easy route or, oh, they don't really want to work. And, and at least in my experience in working with wonderful freelancers and contractors, they work harder than most of the full-time employees because there's no opportunity to coast. If they're not working, they're not making money. And then of course, you know, I would argue from my perspective in, in building a business, you know, and you know this too, right? There's, there's never any downtime. There's no sick days, right? And, and so it's something like hopefully over this time, they'll, they'll be of a perception shift on, on freelancer and, freelancers and contractors and, you know, who, who's making up that audience and, and what they're really capable of doing. Because I think it's, it's an incredible resource to tap into. Obviously, I built a business around it. Of course you do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you're totally right. And I mean, so you're targeting, you know, sort of series A tech companies you talked about. And I think that it's good to have that level of nichiness, you know, particularly if you provide a service because, uh, you know, that meaningfully cuts out, you know, part of the market that you probably can't, you know, isn't adequately funded and can't do the types of things that, you know, that you want to do what makes that persona different for you uh, i guess that's probably a growth disposition performance marketing type of thing like if you got series a you're already proven out uh now you're probably a scale up type of situation i would guess yeah there there's a few reasons why i am so niche and one is because I'd like to, oh, and I hate this term, but like eat my own dog food, right? I talk about the importance of targeting and and having your market and clearly defined. So I talk about that with my clients. So I need to to you know do what I say as well. But but why why post Series A? Which I always like to be really clear about what that is in you know January, I guess February of 2022, because what that meant in 2019 when I started is is very different with all of the funding activity going on. And my clients have product market fit. They have a few million dollars of revenue and they've got this injection of cash from outside investors. And the the requirements for that money are to double or triple revenue in that next year. And, and typically these series A companies, they don't have any full-time marketing team or as I like to say, their, their one marketing hire is the CEO's younger sibling who like just graduated from college and knows social media. So that's why they brought him in to do marketing. And, and so there are these outside factors like they're, they, they can no longer just you know, pull on the low hanging fruit to grow their business. They need processes to repeatedly grow and, and acquire new customers, move them through the funnel and, and all of those fundamentals. Um, and then there's, there's simply the, the fact that you know, in my marketing process and, and where they are, to have someone who can be both strategic and then be able to execute on things is going to be really important to get those processes in in place. And if you're before that stage, then I don't know if you want to be paying a CMO or you need that kind of strategy because your money could be going to to other places. And so I believe that bringing in a, a fractional CMO after Series A funding to get you all the structure and everything set up and move you through to get you to Series B. And then Series B is the time to bring in or whether it's a VP of marketing, you know, some leader or even a, a full-time CMO, it's at that time where you do need that full-time attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking about that leap from and it's so many like these sort of orders of magnitude leaps you know and that that seven to eight figure type of repeatable growth thing where you can now fund a serious leadership team 
I think people used to have a view of fractional as sort of a non-committed. And I think all of us looked at it and said, well, wait a second, that's a far better way to invest money. And whose money are you spending on this? Uh, you know, we're vastly more efficient if we can spread that cost amongst a client group. It, it does not make sense to hire even a VP of marketing, you know, sort of at that level. You want to be doing tactical growth and performance, maybe growth hacky kind of things, but you want to integrate that under, you know, a strategic marketing plan that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. With the picture of that, we want to raise more money and or sell our company later. Uh, you don't yeah. often find that the practitioners of these marketing things are aligned under any strategy. And that is, in fact, a good fractional job. So, I mean, this makes a ton of sense. And yet, I bet you have to argue for and sell it, you know, on a regular basis. Well, of course, I, you know, talk to clients. But what's what's interesting is that I think, you know, there's already starting to be a little bit of a, a mind shift around it. The um, I think fractional CFOs are the most common in startup companies for what I would say all the obvious reasons. And in fact, last summer, the Wall Street Journal had an article out about the rise of the fractional executive. And it talked a lot about CFOs. And even when I first started Arch Collective, I met with a couple of VCs to talk about what I was going to do and, and get their perspective. And they were like, huh, fractional CMO, not as familiar with as the CFO side. And, and so I think, though, this is this is seeing a, a shift because there's, of course, the the monetary, the economic value, right? Like, wow, you get a leader and their strategy and their expertise for for a discounted price. But it's also, you know, I would say if in some of these companies, if I was a full time CMO, in some cases, I mean, there's always lots of work to do, but like. And sometimes in, in those cases, you don't need a CMO. You need the doers, like the roll up the sleeves, get it done. And, and part of the reason I have the collective is I used to say, you don't want to pay me to write an email. That's a really expensive email where if you have a collective or if you have these doers who are great, they're experienced, they can do a really great job, let them do, do that heavy lifting and that execution. It's going to be a much more economic and cost-efficient model. Right. And I think... Maybe you really give, I see this happen too in, in, in other functions, but you give the opportunity for a startup not to make the mistake of hiring somebody who is sort of a tactical growth hacker, marketer, performance type of person and calling them VP or CMO, because then you have this title inflation disaster where this is not a person that can strategically lead. And so you have to like de-promote them or like set the bad cultural precedent of taking that person out and replacing them. Uh, I would much, much rather have somebody who's fractional or interim, if you will, than have to run into that problem of taking somebody who shouldn't have been called that in the first place and having to remove them when they're actually just a really good tactical marketer. Yeah. And I mean, you, we even see a lot of times with uh, founders of companies that after series A and, and after series B, I think those are two inflection points where we often see that the founders no longer serve as the CEO, you know, or um, of the company because the skill set that they needed to get them where they are, like they've exhausted that and they need a different skill set to take the company to the next level. And so if you think about 
a CMO, I mean, what it takes for someone to build the company to where it needs to be at that stage versus where it needs to go to, you know, get acquired or to go public, those are different skill sets. And so, you know, I 100% agree with what you said, which is a fractional CMO is a great way to bring in someone who can be strategic and thoughtful and not a digital marketer where every marketing problem is the proverbial, um, like the digital marketing hammer, where every marketing problem is a nail, like, oh, we solve it with digital, solve it with digital. Because like <laughs> right. some things aren't going to be solved with digital. With 14 and different so, channel strategies. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. right. And sometimes you need events, you know, um, however you can get to those these days. But it's it's like being smart about where the company's at and then what resources they need and then how those are going to evolve over time. And you don't want to pigeonhole yourself and hire a CMO that isn't the good fit for you tomorrow by bringing them on too early today. Of course, you could make this argument, and I just guess this is easy from the, the fractional executive side since we both are, but <laughs> like you could make this argument that like at any stage you would never want to hire, in which case, you know, you, you could imagine you have a founder and a bunch of interims and freelancers. And, you know, I don't, ultimately I, I have troubles thinking like which exact things would people want to maintain on their payroll and cap table. And I think it comes down to a very small core group of people that are actually delivering that product, maybe some subject matter expertise, but uh, you really are getting to the point where like all functional roles probably shouldn't be part of your your core team and that is a massive shift from i used to talk to vcs 10 years ago or they would not even consider such a thing you had to hire your own team and everybody had to be locked in i mean it's completely different now well i mean there are a lot of companies that were positioned for aqua hires right where it's like they did build up a team that had you know Apple, Google, face like all the different logos on it in a startup company only so that they could be sold and acquired for the talent there. And that was a strategy. I don't know how much, I know that there's certainly those acquisitions still happening, but right, like how people are looking at building out a team and what a team means and where they need to be and how they structure even um, like equity payouts. And right now, like, I think everything's on, on the table for change, right? We're living in that time. Yeah, absolutely. So as a as a fractional executive, you know, how, how do you think of about compensation? Like, is there, you know, I've talked to a, a fractional CFO on the show who, you know, is sort of, well, sometimes I keep my eyes open. I might want to be paid with, with some equity. Sometimes I don't, you know, and it's just like, how do you, how do you value the, the folks that you work with and choose the companies? Cause there's actually like, oddly enough, people maybe don't know this, but there's a lot of series A companies that are like, this is a mess and I don't really want to be a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, with my clients, I do have, I do take cash plus equity. So one, you know, at, at a very basic level, if I came in as a CMO, that's how my compensation would be structured too. And so I, I look at it as a way to have aligned incentives, right? I mean, I'm coming in and I mean, they don't necessarily know when they bring me in. I think we're all assuming like I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to do a great job and I'm going to deliver on everything and we're going to grow the company and all of that. But, you know, having the the opportunity to get a piece of the company and then that incentive to definitely want to do that, you know, especially great job and, and invest my time and energy, I think is is really important. So for me, yeah, I, I do take take equity from from my clients, and it's it's a really important piece of how I work with my clients too. I also think it demonstrates from their side that they're taking me seriously in my role in the company. 
So when I join the, and we've talked about lessons learned, we were chatting a little before, right? And, you know, the clients that integrate me and have me attend their executive meetings, have me present to their board that treat me just like they would a full-time CMO, but I'm just working less hours that give me the autonomy to make decisions that let me execute on what I know. Those are the clients that really get the best results. You know, I, I love to say that I have a hundred percent track record of perfect clients. I don't, you know, and I, I've learned a lot along the way, but the ones that, you know, just, they, they brought me in to be a CMO, but then they, you know, just are like, oh, I want you to do only what I say, or just focus on this, or I'll, I'll decide on that. You know, it's like, fine, you know, we can make things work, but you know, you brought me in to be a marketing expert and to help grow your business. And and the best thing you can do is, is let me run free and, and go get that done for you. Right. Yeah. And I remember having this sort of feeling as a consultant before I wanted to be more of the executive level. And I felt like I would go into these gigs and I knew exactly what they should do, but I was often being hired just to you know, put the the stamp on the bad decision that was going to get made anyway. <laughs> and yeah. and I didn't enjoy that, you know, so I, I quickly learned that I wanted to go, you know, sort of upstream and become more selective in the people that I worked with. And that, that became, I don't think there was such a thing as sort of a fractional executive position back then, but it became that role where I can just go like, look, this is the truth. This is what's going to work for you. And if we can't agree on that, then just fire me. I'll go do something else. And, uh, and that was, that was liberating and it was a <laughs> nice career move mm-hmm. for me. So. Well, and, and I, I think that that's, especially when starting out, it's hard to say no, it's hard to walk away. But if I've, I've learned anything in my time that, and I, I'm not always great at doing this myself, but it is important to set boundaries and to say no and to push back. And, you know, again, going back to if if I was the CMO full-time at a company, I would certainly say to the CEO, I think that's a terrible idea. Or like, if we do that, that's going to affect our, our overall brand in this way and the way we've done this. And it doesn't align with our mission and values that we spent, you know, countless hours putting together. So why are we making this decision? And I think that that's the same role that I feel like or the same stance I need to take with my clients is to push back at times because even though, yes, they're paying you, like it's not entirely a client relationship right there. It's like your, your peers, your partners and what you're trying to achieve. Right. Absolutely. And on your own career path, I'm just curious, uh, how did you reach the, I want to be a fractional CMO or fractional executive could apply to a lot of different, you know, functions. What was that leap like from, you know, job and I work on somebody's leadership team to this is what I'm going to do. Because a lot of people want to make that professional leap to, if not solopreneur or work for myself to build a team, uh, you know, scale uh, my own service business. What was what was that like? Because it's a big transition. Yeah. So I I start I started my career at a startup company. And a lot of people started bigger companies and then worked their way to a startup. Well, I started small and then worked my way to a very big company. And while I was there, I, I certainly learned a ton and, and met great people. But I was like, this is a, a slow moving train. And you know, having 60 meetings to agree that we're going to use this two pager on the product launch and then for the product to never launch, I was like, I got no time for this. And so I was interviewing for CMO roles at different startup companies. And there was a point where I had 
multiple companies that I was talking to at the same time. And I, I kind of was like, I could help all of these companies because they all have the same problems. I'm like, I could literally work for all of them doing the same things. And then if they all paid me, have a really good paycheck and be like knocking, like just getting this done for all of them. And once I said it out loud, it was sort of like, oh, like I kind of like this idea. Like, why can't I? Why can't I? And I mentioned I talked to a couple of VCs and then I just basically said, here we go. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to I'm going to hang my shingle, as they used to say, and and go out there. And, you know, there's like I said, there's certainly things that have evolved, like the type of clients I take on, how I vet those clients. I developed a and, and I don't know if you have to bleep this one out, but I have a no asshole policy because I'm like, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to do this as well is to have autonomy over the clients and the companies that I am supporting uh, and working with. And, you know, so it's it's been an adventure, certainly, but it all, you know, started in, I guess, an interview process when I was looking to leave my current job. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's hard to do that. I mean, and, and it feels amazing, though, when you when you finally do, if, if you have the type of disposition that wants to, you know, work for yourself. And I think there are more and more options and sort of versions of that for people, which is cool when we watch, you know, the the nature of work kind of evolve. Everybody feels a little bit like a consultant now, you know, you're sort of remote and, you know, working from home anyway. And those lines are blurring so much and you really start to look at it and you kind of go, literally all that's different now is the manner in which a tax form is presented to you at the end of the year. Like we're all these interesting fractional people sitting at home on a computer and in that way, I think it's going to open a lot of opportunities for these these types of flexible. The only thing I would argue that's a little bit different and and something that I'm I'm keeping my eyes on or I'm I'm interested in um and if I'm jumping ahead to like looking forward hey, a little look bit, but whenever you want. You know, <laughs> okay, we we just um I mentioned the the great resignation we we're, we're still maybe in it right now. You know, I don't know if we're still co coining that term at, at the present date. Maybe it's the great resigned now, but I don't right, know. right. Maybe that's it. And, but either way, we've seen this shift where people are leaving their full-time jobs and we're seeing a ton more people go out on their own. And what I'm interested in seeing is what happens in the next six, 12, 18, and 24 months to that same audience? Because Yes, to your point, you know, a W-2 versus a 1099, not that big of a difference, but having to find your own clients, having to manage the workload, having to pay all of those bills, having to manage the finance and the accounting side, you know, some of those things, I think it's it's easy to look and say, oh, that looks like a life I want or something I saw on TV, I don't know, like, on, you know, HBO or something. But, you know, there there is a lot of work that that takes place. And, and this kind of goes back to the freelancers and the contractors that are out there and have been doing this. It's not for the faint hearted, you know, because it's there's a lot of hustle that has to go into to doing that kind of work. So, you know, I I'm curious to see these people that left where, you know, they walked into an office that had electricity paid for, that had equipment there, that had some sort of break room with coffee, you know, that they they got paychecks deposited without having to do anything. You know, how is it going to look when, um, you know, they've been gone for a year or so and and certainly the environment and everything that we've been in has, has hopefully settled down and shifted a bit. Yeah, you're no, you were totally right. I think that there's going to be a lot of people that uh, explored entrepreneurship and said, that's not 
maybe for me. Uh, and and you, you need to run. And, and I think that's a huge lesson for, for folks. And I, I was going to ask you about this for your own practice, developing business, doing marketing for yourself and having to balance that with billing, you know, and actually it's executing and doing work. Like that's the hardest thing when you, when you start out, especially like in the service business, there's just so much of you to go around. Yeah. And every hour you're invoicing isn't a billable hour. At least I don't bill my clients while I'm invoicing them. Maybe some people do. I do not. But like to your point, when I'm, I'm putting together marketing materials for, for my business, that's an expense, right? Cause I can't be doing something for a client at that point. And I always, you know, joke around that it's the proverbial, like the cobbler's kids have no shoes. And if, especially when I first started out, I was like, something's better than nothing. But it's it's tricky when you're marketing yourself as a marketer and your marketing doesn't look great. It's like, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. I promise. You know, so it's like I certainly need to to make sure that I'm focused on everything that's out there because there's probably just a little bit more critical eye on the marketing materials from a marketer. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally. And and was it hard for you to learn how to do your own sales? Like closing deals is not the same as marketing and having leads. No, I so I am fortunate that my very, the startup that I talked about, I was in sales there for five years. And so we had, in fact, when I came on, we had no clients. And so I was part of building up the the client list for this business. And so it's kind of, it's not the same because I had a, a company behind me, but it's like, I've had to be out there and figure out, okay, what are the questions to ask? You know, what are like, what are the things that I need to go through? Like, what are the materials I need to support this conversation? And I, I think in, in you having done this yourself, I'd love to hear your take. But to me, I don't know if it ever stops. I feel like it's a constantly evolving process as markets change, as my story changes, as my business changes. Um, but yeah, it's I'm, I'm lucky that I've had some experience doing it. So I know I could sell. And in fact, one quick story um, in, I mentioned I started Arch Collective in 2019. Well, I got my first two clients in 2020 and then like March 17th hit and both of them were like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about marketing and like the pandemic and everything went so crazy. So I had to like resell them and re-engage them and both came back and they ended up being longtime clients. And, and there was a, a mental shift for me at that point, which I'm like, I can do this. So I, I sold them, I kind of lost them and I resold them. And if I can do that, I'm going to be fine. You know, it's not going to be easy, but I know I can do this. And so some of those little wins um, certainly helped along the way. Yeah, I can certainly speak to, I wanted to be in my first business that I started in earnest, like 2007, you know, having left industry. Ooh, tough time. Yeah, right, right. Well, it was a great right time. Right before the until, crash. Yeah, I have a blessed, I have a, I have a wonderful history of being able to start businesses right before the economy collapses. So but I did that because I wanted to be a practitioner, a consultant, a coach. Like I wanted to work with leadership and executives. And and I quickly found that I was really just selling so we could pay everybody else to do the thing that I wanted to do. But it turns out I actually like selling. And, and that was cool. And But I discovered sales that way and then moved on to have a sales you know, based career and then start companies that provided you know, service-based uh, or sales-based services. So I stumbled into it by accident and then just kind of liked it, you know, so I, I liked going to close deals. 
And I would argue if you're going to stick in you, collective you, if you're going to stick around in the freelance and contracting and consulting world, you better like selling because it's, it's, it's a like certainly weekly, if not daily part of what you do. And even once you're in the client, you know, you're pitching them because you have to sell them on your idea. You have to sell them on, you know, um, that you are doing a good job or, you know, to say, oh, this is out of scope. So I think like pitching and selling and being able to manage clients is a, is a massive skill set to have or massive part of the job and an excellent skill set to have if you're going to go into to freelancing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You're just always going to be selling and to do that in an authentic way and be able to present like, just like, I think this is actually the best move for your company. Sometimes it's, it'll make me more money to do that. Sometimes it'll make me less money to do that. And, you know, so to have that, that credibility and trust as a, as an expert, I think is, is huge. But I know on average, like when we talked about people building consulting or, you know, these types of practices, it, it used to always be a consulting company. Now it's, now it's fractional, you know, executive. I think it's relatively the same thing, but, you know, we would find that people were shocked that, you know, some 60% of their time was tr trying to fill up and close their pipeline leaving you 10% time for overhead billing, you know, all the frictional junk that you had to do. So now you can only bill 30% of the time, which means your rate needs to be really pretty good, or you need to have people that you can bill at a margin, which means now you also have to have managerial and leadership time. So you, you really get to do less and less of the thing you set out to do. And, if you're a practitioner by nature and you like your work and you don't like running a company, go do that. And it's probably a good idea to work for somebody else or find a collective where you can be a practitioner as a freelancer. And I'm going to jump in and use that as an opportunity to say, if someone's listening and they like the fractional CMO work and not the business side, call me, contact me. Right. Yeah. I, I will know. have all that in there too. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and you know, let me, let me ask, cause we are a B2B show, right? And I think people get really confused between B2B marketing and B2C marketing that, I mean, there's just such a wild difference, like in, in those two worlds, I personally do not understand B2C in any way. I have no consumer sensibilities whatsoever. B2B is, is my, my jam, but marketers get confused between those things. I find. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, in fact, I was having this chat with with a, a CMO the other day, and we were both kind of like, yes, there is there are some tendencies in the B2B world, but the Bs are made up of Cs at the end of the day. And I think that those two worlds are actually blurring more now than ever. And everything we just talked about it, freelancers and companies and everything is is exactly why a lot of that's happening. So and I'll, I'll use a, a small example. I mean, if you went on and, and you needed to order some, some packing tape today, you'd probably go to Amazon or walmart.com. You go to some online company, get it, and it probably arrived tomorrow, the next day, or maybe you like roll up and you buy it today because you can pick it up in two hours. And so there's this immediacy in your consumer life that you expect. That's definitely translating to the business world, right? Where it's not like we're like, oh, cool, yeah, you know, seven days ground shipping, no problem because it's for work. It's like, I need a new headset or I need a new laptop stand or whatever. It's like, oh, I can't get that tomorrow. Well, that's for my business. That's a problem. Like I'm going to be recording a podcast. So I need headphones. So I think that, you know, I, I, again, looking to the future, I'm interested to see 
when when people talk about B2B, because I also, you know, I market myself as a B2B marketer, like how are those worlds going to at some point, some point meet? Where I do think that there's some differences specifically and and you know, again, like I I don't market myself as B2C. It's like the the B2C um the 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 budgets the um the the channels for marketing the types or ways that you reach people and the swath of people you may be reaching that can really vary i i built a business where i focus on insure tech and by insurance i mean home insurance pnc pro- property and casualty the fintech side which tends to be on the mortgage side and prop tech so everything around the home really and so my my personas, my target audiences for my clients tend to be in a certain box, if you will. And and so if someone said, hey, we got to, you know, target this phone to a 13 year old boy, I'd be like, I got nothing there other than a best guess from having nephews, you know. And so it's I think it comes down to understanding your niche and whether your niche is a, um, a C and a B or your niche is just a C buying. Like you got the more you can understand them, the better, because it's more and more and more and more competitive to get your brand, get your name, you know, break through the clutter that's out there. Yeah, well said. I like that a lot. It reminds me of like I hear people say B2B2C now, which is like my buying entity is a collection of essentially consumers who meet some kind of of profile and the influencer is different than the decision maker is different than the check signer. And, and that gets you back to like marketing aligning better with sales. It's like, yeah, we want to reach and communicate with all those people. And us folks down on the bottom of the sales funnel are sort of like, listen, it's super cool that you have a persona and you have all this high sort of falutin top of funnel stuff. But please understand that that average human never shows up on the call with us. <laughs> and, you know, we have we have one little data point component that helped make the average and we need to appeal to them as an individual. And if I ever see marketing sales get out of a line, like strategically, it's really around around that. And I think it's probably makes you a much better marketer that you had to do sales because you understand that in a, in a like visceral way that, you know, that persona, you know, Bob, the executive never shows up on the call. It's always some little piece that sort of looks like that. <laughs> well, in, in one of the, the ways that I, I onboard or a piece of my, my marketing plan process is to conduct voice of client interviews. And to me, as a marketer, if you're not doing this today, start immediately. And and because of my sales background, I would I would be listening. And and actually, before I I carried a bag at that startup, I spent a few months in customer success. So I was hearing from customers all the challenges that they have, or our beta testers technically. So I I was listening to the customer, and then I was out there, and what they were telling me was different than what I heard on the phone. And then it was certainly different than what marketing was telling me um, at that particular company. And so when I'm working, I want to go to the clients directly. I'm comfortable doing it. I value what they have to say. And if those are the people that are going back to product market fit, if they're the ones using our product or our solution in some cases, I want to hear directly from them. You know, I want to understand why, what was the competitive set that they looked through? You know, why did they choose us? How are they using us? What problems are we solving versus what we think we're solving. And so, you know, those are, that is where my sales and marketing worlds collide is in voice of client, which I think is arguably the most powerful tool in marketing. Yep. 
Yep, I can't. I completely agree. If everybody wants to take away one thing here, it's like, for God's sake, as a marketer, please go talk to actual paying customers. And, and I'll add to that that your sales folks, remember, are having daily, sometimes multiple daily discussions with prospects. So these are the people that the marketing are actually bringing in. And what are those people asking and demanding of the sales team? Collect that information because you need to see if that matches up with what you thought was happening. So uh, the most damaging thing. Sales calls. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes, please. Or, or And now it's so them. easy because we're all like this anyway. Yeah. So you can you can join and people are used to, you know, people being there. It's not like you have to fly somewhere like you used to. So totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And salespeople and marketing people that are listening, just record every call and have a database that tells you, I mean, literally you're doing customer discovery every single minute you have a sales call and all that intelligence generally just gets thrown away. So uh, big, big That's time. Actually, I like that idea. I, I haven't thought to suggest that, but like going into the sales, cause you know, one of the things that, and going back to turnover and all of that is that if, if they had a, a whole call it library of of sales calls that were recorded, like what better way to, to train and understand, you know, what are those questions? And yes, you can document them and that could be, you know, something that would be a helpful tool, but you know, like, how do they ask them? When do they come up? Why are they asking that question? You know, like what preceded the question that was asked? So I like that idea. I'm going to, that's going to be a pearl I take from you. There you go. Excellent. The trading of pearls. Well, I love that. Any other, I know we talked a little bit about like things to pay attention to. Maybe throw one more in there. If you, if you've got it before we run out of time, I love to let everybody put on your futurist hat. What should we care about and pay attention to? So I'll, I'll recap the two, which is that I already mentioned one, which is around the, the rise in the freelance world and like what happens over the next few months. The second one, which I've, geez, I've already forgotten it. Hopefully you do. But the, the third one that whenever I think of the future, I think of, and especially because I work with startup companies, 2021 was crazy when it came to, to investing and, and, you know, the amount of dollars that were invested into startups. We're already seeing a lot of interesting things happen in the stock market. I mean, if you paid attention this morning, um, you know, certainly the tech world is, is being hit. And so I'm going to be very curious what happens to the funding that takes place in 2022. And, you know, I think when you see so much money in the market, there's a lot of bad companies and not that they're bad people, but like it just may not be some an idea that's needed or it may not have fruition, but bad companies do get funded. And so, you know, what, what starts to happen um, as we start to see some of those companies fade away, where do the marketing or the, excuse me, where do the um, venture capital dollars go? So those are the, the two things that I'm keeping in mind. And then the third one, which I already mentioned, and I've already forgotten. Yeah. Two out of three ain't bad. Right. And God bless. There you uh, go. Yeah. RIP meatloaf, you know, for that one. So <laughs> Amanda, thank you for hanging out. If folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. So you can follow my personal or my company handles. Um, Arch Collective is a great way to search or go to my website, which is arch-collective.com. And you can contact me via form there. And I, I'd love to hear from you. I love hearing from founders. And as I mentioned, if you're a freelancer or a potential fractional CMO, reach out too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the insights and hanging out today. Thank you, Ledge. Appreciate the conversation. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.